Romans chapter 7. We are going to focus our attention just for a brief time this morning before we come around our time in communion in verses 13 to 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. And just by way of introduction to say that this section can be and actually is for many one of the most difficult passages to understand in all of Scripture would be rather an understatement to simply just say that because throughout the centuries within evangelicalism, this passage has been the catalyst for no small stir within the church. And it seems to me, as I have looked at this as I have read through the various arguments in reference to these verses, the most, most of the controversy, most of the stir, most of the debate within the church is around trying to answer the question of who is being described in these verses. Who is it that Paul is talking about by using the pronoun I? It is used some 24 times in just these three verses, and so many will focus their attention on that reality and try to answer the question as to who he is talking about. And so many go on to delineate just who the I is here. Is this the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul when he speaks of I in it? For when he says in verse 13, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Or verse 15, for that which I am doing. Or in verse uh, 16, but if I do the very thing I do not wish, and so forth and so forth and so forth. Is he talking about himself? Is this a personal testimony of the Apostle Paul in his own life? Is he referring to himself as he struggles with life as a Christian? That is... One view, others view this as it is an autobiography of the Apostle Paul before he was a Christian, as he was living as a Jew, as he was living, trying and working and doing so much to try to keep the law. And so is this autobiographical? Is this the Apostle Paul describing himself? And many will go on to all kinds of debates and all kinds of arguments as to why they would believe and say that this is the Apostle Paul. Others, however, other views suggest that possibly this is just a description of an immature Christian, someone who is truly saved, someone who is living out or trying to live out the Christian life and yet immature in themselves before they really get the Christian life going, before they really have the essence of mature Christianity working and working out its obedience in their life, at least that's how some would describe it. It's almost as if they're describing that as a Christian you need to have a second blessing, much like the charismatic movement might say that someone can believe God and they can live a carnal life and then until they get a second blessing they really get the Christian life going and so this would be a description of that kind of person prior to really receiving the Spirit in its truest sense. Still others suggest that the I here is a description of an unsaved person, someone who is completely unsaved in their 
struggling attempt to live a morally good life by means of religious activity or just morality in general. And so while they want to do good, they just don't seem to be able to do good. Similar to if you wanted to take this as if it's Paul prior to his conversion. Each of these arguments have variations within them so that the answers and the arguments to each of these are so extensive and it can often leave one who is studying this passage more confused when they come out the end than when they went in. Now you know how my week went. (laughs) But I want to suggest this morning that this passage really doesn't have to be all that difficult for us to understand when we keep in mind where the emphasis lies within the entire argument of the Apostle Paul throughout this entire epistle or letter, but primarily since chapter 5. One principle of Bible study that you must always keep in mind when you are studying a passage that is this. You cannot take any passage in isolation. In other words, you cannot just look at a passage within the group of an entire letter and take it in isolation and draw out from it something that may or may not be there. And specifically within a letter such as Romans, the author, Paul, was arguing a particular point. In other words, Paul is emphasizing what he was emphasizing from the beginning of the argument. Paul has not changed his emphasis. Paul's entire emphasis throughout the letter, but primarily since chapter 5, he has had a drive. He has had an emphasis. He is arguing for a certain point. And I trust we remember from our study what that point is. Because the Apostle Paul has been driving to this point in all of his argumentation, and it is simply this. Here is the argumentation from Paul since the very beginning of this book, and yet since specifically from chapter 5. No one is and no one can be justified or sanctified by means of outward work. No one can be justified and no one can be sanctified by means of outward compliance or even attempted compliance to the law. I heard one preacher say it this week, you cannot self-atone. I like the way he said that. You cannot self-atone by means of the law, nor can you self-holify yourself. You cannot become more holy by doing the works of the law. Whether it's prior to salvation or whether it's after salvation. Before the cross, you cannot work your way into innocence before God and thereby holiness before God. And after the cross, you did not get there by means of your own effort and you cannot make yourself more holy by means of your more effort. And so if you go away today from here with nothing else locked in your mind, and I'm not suggesting this so that you close your Bible and fall asleep now and wait till the end and we have communion. But if you go away with nothing else, have this truth. By means of the law, by means of ritualistic compliance, by means of your own effort, by the agency of God's revealed commands, 
You cannot be justified before God, nor can you be sanctified by doing the commands of God. Now that does not negate the necessity of the law. By saying that we cannot be justified by means of the law or by saying that we cannot be made holy by means of the law does not in any way or in any kind of thought diminish or negate the necessity of the law for all men. There is a great movement over the last several years who have tried to say we don't need the law anymore. We don't need the law of God after all, and I've said this before in our study, we are under grace. The law was archaic. The law was for Israel. The law had to do with all kinds of ceremonial things. We don't need the law of God. We're not under law. We are under grace. And that would negate the necessity of the law in our lives. And Paul is arguing flatly against that because that is the argument of the Jew. Paul is being accused of just saying, well, the law doesn't matter anymore. In all of the words that go on between chapter 5 up to chapter 8, the law doesn't matter anymore. In fact, the accusation has been made that the law is, in fact, the problem. They have intimated that in verse 7. Is the law sin then? They will intimate that again in this passage. The law must be problematic. We need the law. It doesn't negate the necessity of the law simply because we cannot become innocent before God through the law or be made holy through the law, but simply to say that the agency of our salvation and the agency of our sanctification is not the law. This becomes very important for us as Christians. And we'll see that hopefully as we work through this passage this week and next. Because very often as Christians, we try subtly, we, we convince ourselves that by doing, we are somehow maturing in our Christianity. We're somehow becoming more holy. And we, have to, we have to rid that out of our mind. We have to get that from our thinking. We have to get that from our motivation to do anything that we do. We cannot be sanctified through the law. And so that has been Paul's drive throughout this whole study, throughout this whole series in this current section of our letter. No one is justified by keeping the law. Man is saved one way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith in Christ. That's how someone is saved. And as Christians, we have been removed from the penalty of the law. The law comes along and says if you fail in one point, as James says, you are condemned. You are guilty of the whole law. Condemnation is the penalty of the law. We in Christ have been removed from the penalty of the law. And therefore, our sanctification, our holiness, our set-apartness in Christ is not according to the works of the law. It is not according to us keeping some standard of rules by where we are sanctified. It is true that it is the will of God that we be sanctified. Sanctified in our practice, set apartness in our obedience. And yet the reality is by means of God we are already in His sight fully sanctified just as we are fully justified, just as we are already fully glorified yet to take place in the future. Romans chapter 8 clearly tells us that. 
So that's the whole point that Paul has been making and is making. And so when we arrive here in chapter 7 to this final section, the entire difficulty that has ensued within Christendom has been, I believe, because the focus has been on what kind of person is Paul describing here rather than on the actual emphasis that Paul is intending. Paul is not trying to highlight what kind of person this is, believer, unbeliever, Christian or not. Paul is emphasizing here that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. We can do nothing to earn our sanctification. He's not describing necessarily who the I is, but rather everything to do with continuing to emphasize what I have said over and over and over again that should be ringing in your ears by the time you leave here today by means of the law. No one is justified, nor are we sanctified. And if someone continues to argue, even the Christian, if the Christian continues to argue that sanctification comes by means of keeping the law, then you have a real problem. Because Romans 7, verse 13 to 25, show the reality that that can't be the case. Can't be the case for someone who is a, is a law-trying-to-keep-up-the-law kind of Jew to get saved, it can't be for, for them, nor could it be for you and I as Christians to try to think that we can become more and more holy by our law-keeping. In other words, there is a war going on between the flesh and the spirit. Therefore, if sanctification, if my holiness, my practical holiness is determined by means of me keeping the law, then I as a believer am in deep, deep trouble because this passage reflects the reality of Christian living. It reflects the reality that I still sin. And so part of the difficulty with this passage as you walk through it, as you'll see, is the Apostle Paul sometimes seems as if he's talking as an unbeliever. Verse 14, I know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold into bondage of sin. There seems to be a sense in which that would only be the condition of an unbeliever. We are freed from bondage to sin in Christ. He has told us that in the previous chapters. And yet the reality is we are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin, but we are not free from the presence of sin. That will come one day in glorification, but here and now, in our mortality, in our bodies here and now, we are not freed from the presence of sin. So there is a sense, even in the Christian life, that we are still in some kind of bondage to sin. Not bondage by way of it telling us what to do and by our nature we must do what it does because that's what we do according to nature. But sometimes we come under it by willful choice. And yet at other times Paul seems to be indicating that maybe he's talking about a Christian here. Because notice verse 19, for the good that I wish. No believer, unbeliever wishes to do the will of God. No one seeks after God. 
So how could Paul be talking about an unbeliever in this passage? For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. How can that be an unbeliever? Paul must be talking about a believer. Is he? This is some of the things that wrinkle the feathers of many within Christendom. They come out of their collective studies shaking their heads and scratching their heads much like I have this week. It's as if Paul is simply saying, as many of his objectors have suggested, that we need the law to be justified, that we need the law to be sanctified. That's what his objectors were saying. We need the law, Paul. We must have it. This is how we attain righteousness. This is how we attain rightness with God. This is how we attain holiness. We need the law, and you're saying we don't need it. And if that is the case, then as a believer, I'm in a precarious position if I don't need the law. Why? Because I find it impossible not only to justify myself, but I also find it impossible to sanctify myself by means of the law. Why? Because I still sin all the time. Sin is ever before me all the time. I fail at law-keeping all the time. And thereby, if justification and sanctification come by law, then I am in deep, deep trouble, whether it's prior to salvation or whether it's after salvation. So what I believe Paul is wanting us to learn here is the very same truth that he has been emphasizing all along. As he closes down the foolish arguments raised about the law, and here, by means of our own life experience as Christians, that our relationship to the law of God is simply this. You want to talk about the law in your life prior to salvation or after salvation? Here is the relationship to the law. The law of God, the law is God's means of revealing His righteous character and His righteous demands upon man. The law is God's means of displaying His righteous character and His righteous demands upon man and... It reveals the depth of our sinfulness because we fail to follow the law all the time. Both of those realities lead us to Christ. The reality that God's righteous character is on display and His demands are ever before us when we look at the law of God and when we look at the living Word, Jesus Christ, and Like a two-edged sword, it cuts down to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts so that we realize just how sinful we really are. And both of those lead us to Jesus Christ, which is the conclusion that Paul emphasizes in the final verses of this very section. Notice what he says in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He goes on to continue that reality and the no condemnation that we have in Christ that he says in chapter 8 verse 1 but he continues it in verse 3 and 4 for what the law could not do. What does he mean? The law could not make me righteous. The law could not make me innocent. The law could not make me holy. The law can do nothing to affect me by means of itself before God. It was weak. 
Why? As it was, it was weak through the flesh. What it could not do because weakened through my own sinfulness, God did. What did He do? He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of men, as an offering for sin. And God condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that, here's the purpose, in order that the requirement of the law, the perfect requirement of God's righteousness seen in the law as His character and demand is on display, the perfect requirement of righteousness might be fulfilled in us. You can't fulfill the law any other way except through Jesus Christ. God did that. God did that. That, brothers and sisters, is the essence of grace. That is the essence of grace. That God would give us His law. That God would would write on tablets of stone and have it elaborated in even greater ways through the life of Jesus Christ and through the Word of God given to us that His righteous character would be on display and the demands for mankind would be right before His very eyes so that man would see His utter sinfulness and run to Christ. To throw away the law is to throw away God. It is the essence of grace. And so we need the law because it shows us those very things. It shows us the character of God and His righteousness and His demands for all men and it reveals to us our sinfulness. And we need to see that so desperately either side of glory, either side of the cross, we need to see that. We need to see that prior to salvation so that we will run to the cross and beg for mercy upon the cross of God's grace that we might know Jesus Christ as our Savior. And after the cross, we need to beg for mercy upon God every time in Jesus Christ, knowing that our efforts are meaningless without Christ. And all of our obedience simply is a reflection of the glory and grace of God. And so just by way of introduction this morning, let's not get carried away with the who not get carried away with the I pronoun in this passage because sometimes it sounds like Paul is speaking as an unbeliever and sometimes as a believer. Rather, let's not miss the what of this passage. Let's not miss the what. The law cannot justify. The law cannot sanctify. If we as believers sometimes begin to think. We think sometimes in some even small way that by means of law-keeping we are made more holy. And we have a real problem because we violate the law all the time. So with that in mind, with that kind of as a as an introduction, as a foundation to look at this passage, I want to read for us this section this morning and then just introduce it to us really. And we'll get into the details more so next week, but just introduce it to us for a time of communion. Beginning in verse 13, Paul says this, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, 
that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing that or what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. And I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So as you can see, just in reading of this text, we are faced with the dilemma There is nothing wrong with the law of God. Paul has declared that in verse 12. He reiterates that here in this section beginning in verse 13. The law of God in verse 12 is holy. The law of God is holy. That is, in its entirety, it is set apart. In its entirety, there is no corruptness. In its entirety, there is no sense in which the law of God has any aspect of it in which it is tainted by some kind of unholiness. The law is holy. And, notice he says, the commandment, verse 12, is holy, righteous, and good. That is to say that its nature and the quality of its individual parts is holy, righteous, and good. The law in its entirety is holy, is set apart, and the law in all of its individual parts is holy, righteous, and good. Why? Because the law is a reflection of the lawgiver. The law is holy because God is holy. The commandment in its specificity is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because God is holy, righteous, and good. Therefore, we can even say that when you and I do obey the law, we are not becoming holy, we are not becoming righteous, we are not becoming good in doing it, in exercising obedience to it. We are simply reflecting the very nature of God who has been wrought in us through Jesus Christ. When you and I obey The Scriptures, when we do what God has commanded us to do, we are not becoming holy. We are not enriching our lives with some kind of new holiness that we did not have before. We are simply in that reflecting the very nature of God given to us 
through Jesus Christ. We are living Christ-like when we obey. Not in order to be holy, but because we are holy in Christ. You see the difference? It's a massive difference. There's a massive difference, albeit the practice may look the same, but the motivation in doing it and the why we're doing it and the understanding of why we're doing it is completely different. One is by means of exercise I'm becoming holy. The other is because I am holy, I'm exercising. Completely different. Simply stating it again, there is nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with what God has told us to do, either in its parts, its commandments, or in its totality. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is not the problem with us living as God would have us to live. This is the modern idea sometimes in the evangelical church, as some liberals want to try to say. The problem is we try to live according to the law, so and we can't live according to the law, and after all, we're under grace, so let's get rid of the law. No, 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 no. The problem is not the law. The problem is not the gracious reality that we are under grace. The problem is us. The problem is our sin. The problem with us is sin. So when God saved us, He saved us, as I said, from the penalty of sin, the condemnation of sin. We are free from the bondage to sin. The bondage and the the condemnation that came with that bondage. We are freed from that. Christ freed us from that. He paid the penalty, as chapter 8 says. He sent His Son to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It is fulfilled in us. The requirement of perfection before God, the requirement of of being seen as if we are law keepers, that has been kept by Christ. The problem in us is not the law. The penalty of the law, the penalty of the law of sin, as it's called, In verse 2 of Romans chapter 8, we are free from the law of sin and death. The penalty has been taken care of. The power has been taken care of. In other words, we're not under the ruler of sin anymore. We're under the ruler of the Spirit. We are under a new owner, Jesus Christ. The penalty and the power of sin are gone. It does not rule us. We can obey God. But the reality of sin, the presence of sin, was not removed from our flesh. It was not removed from our life here on this earth. In fact, if we say we do not sin, if we say we have not sinned, 1 John says we not only call God a liar, but we lie and the truth is not in us. presence of sin is so prevalent. So we must deal with sin. We must deal with its effects here and now, even though it has been dealt with in our forever future. If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. 
we say, I can be holy by my keeping of the law, that is to simply say that I have not sinned, and that is a lie. We have a sin problem, and our sin problem in its totality is seen in a whole myriad of ways. And the law of God comes along, and we open the Word of God, and it shines its blazing light upon us. The rules, the regulations, the demands that God has for His creation, all reflecting His holiness, all reflecting His righteousness and His goodness, all reflecting who He is. And sin is stirred up by that standard. Sin is stirred up because God says, you shall not covet, as Paul said. And Paul said, when that happened, I saw coveting all over the place in my life. That's what happens. That's what, when the law comes along, it reveals all of that. Sin is stirred up, and sin immediately begins to exercise itself in a whole host of ways. Rightly so. We Christians agree with the truth that no one is justified before God by means of effort. Especially in this church. Because we hold to that doctrine so preciously and so rightly that justification cannot happen by means of your own effort. And we argue against that and we, and we proclaim the truth so that those who are caught in false religions, primarily of Catholicism, we say, listen, you can't earn your way to heaven. And we get knocks on our doors at home by those of false religions who want to engage us with conversations about their way of entering into heaven. And we tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot enter that way. And we as Christians rightly agree that you cannot earn salvation. It's so patently obvious. It's so patently obvious that we are sinners. And even pagans will readily accept the truth that no one is perfect. That's why they so readily desire that God will accept unperfect people. They say nobody's perfect. And the implication is we all fail at some point. And of course, we who have faith in Jesus Christ, we who are Christians, we who are true Christians, know that to violate one part of the law of God is to violate the whole law. And so the truth is that we are all lawbreakers and in need of saving from the wrath of God. We who are believers will easily say that the only way to be declared innocent before God, to be justified, is through faith in Jesus Christ, and rightly so. No one is justified by the works of the law. No one earns their justification by effort. You cannot earn your salvation by means of moral activity. And yet, and yet, as Christians, it seems so subtle, but what happens so often is that we can get into our thinking, although we may not proclaim it to anyone, although we may not go around saying these kinds of things, but subtly in our own thinking, we live this out, that after salvation, we are somehow, in our minds, sanctified by keeping the law. And that if we don't keep the law, if I don't do what God's Word says at every moment in every day at any given time, then God's wrath is on me, if not already upon me. He is just up there with a hammer waiting to smash me like an ant. 
go around with this big flaming black cloud over us. We get this idea that we are sanctified by rule keeping. You say, what do you mean by rule keeping? I mean things like Psalm 1 says, right? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't listen to the naysayers, in other words. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Wow, what a standard. That's huge. How many of you failed to do that this week? Well, if you're trying to arrive at holiness by your standard of meditating on the law of God, you just failed. You're no longer holy. It's over. I must be meditating. I must be reading. I must be intaking the Scriptures day and night. That is true. And when I do, I'm a good, mature Christian, we convince ourselves. Maybe it's practice hospitality. We are to practice hospitality among the brethren. In the text, the Word of God tells us, so if I have others over to my home, then I am a good, mature Christian. Any other spiritual discipline that you might have in your mind right now that you're thinking about, the command listed from the Bible, if I do them, then I'm a mature Christian. I have just subtly convinced myself that practical sanctification comes by means of keeping the law of God. Rather than obedience to the law of God being a reflection of, a reflection of the character of Christ in me. Because I'm already justified and I'm already sanctified. My obedience to the Word of God doesn't earn me anything before my Holy Father except this reality that when I obey the Word of God, I am reflecting the very goodness, holiness, righteous character of God that He wrought in me through His Son. Guess what that does for me? It does nothing for me in the sense of my position before God and everything to humble me before my Father. Because all the credit goes to Him. Nothing to me. And this, I believe, is Paul's emphasis here. If we think in any way that we are sanctified by the law, then we have a real problem because there's the reality of the indwelling sin in our life. Remember, our problem is not the law. Our problem is sin. And Paul is showing us by introducing the issue at hand. Here's the issue at hand, verse 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. That was what the naysayers were saying. That's what the Jewish legalist was saying. And that's what oftentimes we might think when we're in the camp of let's get rid of the law because we're under grace. Is that which is good something that causes bad for me or something that causes death for me? Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not the case. Rather, sin is the problem. The law isn't the problem. Sin is the problem. In order that it, what? That, That sin might be shown to be what it is. How? By affecting my death, my 
lossless, my troubledness through that which is good. Sin takes even the good things and pollutes them in such a way that it shows and produces even in us as unbelievers death. Through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Paul's not saying that sin becomes sinful when the commandment is there. Paul is saying sin is revealed to be what it really is when the commandment is open. We are so good at justifying our sin, so good at minimizing the reality of what it is, so good at at lessening the reality and the depth of what God requires, and yet when the law is open, it shows everything that we are. That's why it says that the law of God is like a two-edged sword that cuts down to the thoughts and intentions of your heart. God sees far deeper than anybody else sees. And our outward activity can look like it's all righteous and good, and yet the heart can be so legalistic. So law-keeping for the sake of my own holiness. This is the issue at hand. And we touched on it briefly in the past, but now Paul's going to touch on it in full. If we have died, if we've died to the law, as Paul has already told us, and the law was the instrument that sin used to kill us, then the objectors of, to a justification or a sanctification apart from the law argue this. Then what you're saying, Paul, is that the law, the good law, is a cause of death. That the problem is not sin, the problem is the law. This is the same kind of rhetorical question we've already seen before. I pointed it out earlier, verse 7. What shall we say then is the law sin? If we're under grace and God is in us to produce righteousness, If we've been released, verse 6, from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of letter, then is the law sin? Paul says no. Absolutely not. They're saying the law must be sin if it can't save us. The law must be sin if it can't sanctify us. The problem must be with the law. Paul says the problem isn't with the law. The problem is with you. And the answer then and the answer now is the same. There is nothing wrong with the law. The law is not sin, and the law is not a cause of death. Never, never, never. The law is the perfect reflection of the holiness and righteousness and goodness of God. Never could we say that it is the cause of our demise. To say that the law is a cause of our demise, to say that the law is sin, to say that the law which is good is a cause of my death is to attribute to God those very realities. To say that God is a cause of my sin. And that takes you all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's exactly what Adam said to God. God, the problem here is not me. The problem is you and that woman you gave me. Had you never given me her, I would have never fallen. God, if you wouldn't have given us the commandment, we would never fail. 
We would never do wrong. The cause of our demise is not God. The cause of our demise is not the law. The cause of our demise is not the law. It is sin. And the reason that no man can justify himself and the reason that no Christian can sanctify himself is because we all have a sin problem. The penalty and power of our sin problem is taken care of in Christ for the Christian, but we still have a sin presence problem. Sin uses the law to bring about our demise. And the law simply shows just how sinful and deadly sin really is. You see, you can't get rid of the law any more than you can get rid of God. We need the law. We need the righteous standard of God. We need the good, holy, righteous standard of God right before us because the law shows us just how sinful we are. This is why I said several weeks ago, don't run from conviction. Don't feel bad when the Holy Spirit upon your life is convicting you because of what you read in the Word of God and what you hear being taught from the Word of God and it brings conviction of your life. Don't run from that. Embrace that. Let it be seen for what it is and run to Christ. We need the law. And all people need the law. Because we, in our sin, are experts. Experts, well practiced in just how sinless we are. We are so sinful, we don't even know how sinful we really are. The law of God comes along turns its spotlight of God's glory blazing upon our very heart to show us just how sinful we are and through that thereby our need for the righteousness of Christ. That is grace. I love it when people say we're un- we, we live in grace as if we don't need to, to do what the requirements of the law. Just go live how you want. Live whatever way you want. You're under grace. You're not under the law. You don't have to obey that standard. In fact, to obey that standard, that's legalism. Well, it certainly is legalism if you're trying to be justified by keeping it or to be sanctified by keeping it. That certainly would be legalism. But if it's legalism because I have a standard of God upon my life and my obedience to it reflects His glory, that's not legalism. That's what's called being a child of God and walking by the Spirit. This morning, here we are, right? Here we are. Sunday morning, first Sunday of the month, we're in this church and we come together to worship God. Rightly so. We sing songs and we pray. We gather together and give and serve. And on this day of the month, we celebrate what? Communion. We celebrate communion. And the very thing that sin does through the law causes death. And we celebrate. And rightly so. Because with this death, the requirement of the law is fulfilled. There's no way to self-atone. The only way to have atonement on yourself is by means of the death of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Romans 8, 3, and 4 says. He fulfilled the requirement of the law 
that it might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know what he means by that? We'll see this more as we go on later in Romans chapter 8, but walking according to the flesh. That's walking according to the thinking and standards and, and ways of which man thinks, which is this. If I do it, I'll be right before God. That's not how we walk. We walk by faith, knowing that the failures are taken care of. That doesn't give me license to do whatever I want. That gives me the desire to honor God because I have a right standing with him, because I am holy in his presence. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the, the, the mentality of a mind of, of one who is walking by the Spirit. I know there's, there's no condemnation for me before God. I know I'm fully justified before God. I know I'm fully sanctified before God. Therefore, I will walk according to obedience. Why? Because that's my character. That's my nature. That's what I have the power to do by the Spirit of God in me. God condemns sin in the flesh by means of the sacrifice of His Son so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who are the us? The believer. That's why I think Paul's talking more about the Christian life here in Romans chapter 7 than he is about an unbeliever. He could be dealing with the Jewish brothers who, who would have loved the law. They, they would have grown up under the law, they would have had this sense in which, at least in their humanness, they loved the law of God. They were trying in every kind of way to do the law of God. And so you could, you could look at this passage from that standpoint that Paul is really speaking to his Jewish brothers and saying, listen, this is who I was before I got saved. I, 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 I know the law is spiritual and I'm of the flesh and I'm sold into bondage of sin and I, and I want to do the right thing, but I don't understand why I'm not. I'm practicing the things I, I don't do. I'm doing the very thing that I know is wrong and I hate that, but, but if I'm not doing that, then I, know, I say that the law is good. So I'm confessing that, that the law has a, a character of goodness, so I'm no longer the one doing it. It's this principle of sin in me. It's the, that there's a reality in me that wants to do right, but I see this sin continually happening in me. See, that, that, that could be Paul talking about himself prior to salvation. But because of Romans chapter 8, and the word us in verse 4 and the reality of what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. I seem to think more that he's talking about the reality of a sanctification issue here. Those who believe upon Jesus Christ by faith, the us is those who put no hope in the flesh for justification and sanctification. I think this is the whole point of Paul. And I know this morning we're just introducing this. We're going to get to the next next verses in the next two weeks because next week we have Dr. Hughes here. But this is the point that we have to lock in our minds, in our intellectual minds, and even more so in our practical minds. You cannot be sanctified. You cannot be made holy through the works of the law. You cannot be more holy than you are in Christ, if you're a true believer in Christ, by means of 
doing all the spiritual disciplines and commands that God has commanded us as his children. You cannot become more. You already are fully sanctified in Christ. All you can now do by the power of the Spirit is walk obediently and reflect that very reality in your life. We cannot be sanctified through the works of the law. Why? Because we have a sin problem. Sin gets in the way every time. In verse 14 to 25, Paul shows us the reality of that by giving us two explanations and a conclusion. Two explanations and a conclusion. And I'll just give you the outline for next time. Two explanations and a conclusion. In verses 14 to 17 is the first explanation. Why do I have a problem if I want to try to be sanctified through the keeping of the law? Because the character of the law in compared to the character of my humanity are, are diametrically opposed. That's the first explanation. The character of the law and the character of humanity, Paul compares them in verses 14 to 17. And the end result of that in verse 17 is there's a sin problem. And then explanation number two, verses 18 to 21, is the character of humanity in practice. This is the reality and character of humanity in practice. Character of our fleshiness in practice. Paul even declares it in verse 18, I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And the same result he ends with in verse 21. I find the principle that evil is present in me. Right? I have a sin problem. Even though I wish to do good, I have a sin problem. Explanation number one, the character of the law compared to the character of humanity. Explanation number two, the character of humanity in practice. And then third, the conclusion. The conclusion Paul comes to in verse 24 to 25. The reality of living and where our help comes from. I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But there's a different law going on in my body. There's this war happening between what I do and what I want to do. And my help only comes from one place. Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going to go. That's where we're going to get to next time. But I want us this morning to just begin to prepare our hearts in this reality, this thought. No justification, no sanctification by means of the law. Can't get there. Only through Jesus Christ. And so we come to the communion table here in just a moment with that reflection. The reflection of the reality of what Paul says in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 8, which is based upon the promise of chapter 8, verse 1. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for just this brief look, really, this introduction kind of look into this great section of the Apostle Paul to show us why the law is so necessary. Why it's so needful. And how so very often we 
We really think we're doing okay when we're not. And sometimes we beat ourselves up far too much than we are. Based upon an understanding of the law that is flawed. So I pray you would help us with that. That you would enrich our understanding. Help us understand the truth of what it means to live a Christian life. To follow after and in the footsteps of our Savior Jesus Christ. Because we have the Spirit of Christ in us. And we can do what's right for all the right reasons. Not in order to gain, but simply because we have gained everything in Christ. And so, Lord, that is our hope this morning as we think about our time around the great sacrifice it took to even put us in that place. I pray that as we reflect upon that, that any notion of sin, any area in which there is unconfessed sin, we will deal with that first, not bring our offering to the altar in any kind of way until that is dealt with before you. So we thank you for these time and for these people. Honor your name in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.